is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Cryptocurrency is collapsing on the markets with up to $300 billion in value wiped out just this week. What's behind the meltdown? Is it a I told you so moment for the skeptics or just a blip? We go in-depth tech startups run into economic problems with many laying off workers and cutting costs. Is this a bubble bursting? And Elon Musk, you remember him, he casts doubt now on his own deal to buy Twitter. So what's up with that? Ukraine starts the first war crimes trial for a Russian soldier. Governor Newsom unveiling an inflation relief plan and a massive budget surplus. And uh, who's afraid of today's date and why in-depth on Friday the 13th? We start with the dramatic fall this week in cryptocurrencies. Well, this is Dan Dolov, an analyst at the Mizuho Group who covers crypto companies and financial technology. Uh, Dan, thanks for being with us. We said at the very top, uh, is this just a, a blip? But that's kind of like saying the Hindenburg was a little fire. I mean, $300 billion in a week? I know it's, it just shows you um, how high it has gone, right? And, and sort of the, the, the hype that we've lived through in the last two, you know, two years since the beginning of COVID. Um, it's just those those numbers were just and, and some of that behavior was just so irrational that it, it almost makes sense. It, it, I view this almost as sort of a, a, a you know, a check in with uh, with um, sanity again in terms of uh, in terms of where it's headed. You got to feel for people who jumped in over the last like six months, so especially who were big on Bitcoin because it was so, so high six months ago. And now it's 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 come back a little bit, but well down from where it was and some of the other currencies as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel, I mean, look, I mean, we, we hear, um, we, we, I'm a research analyst, right? So I cover, you know, all these names like Coinbase and, and Square, you know, also known as Block and, and PayPal and, and what have you, Robinhood. So I know we're very close to everything that's going on. Um, you know, we actually did an interesting uh, survey uh, like a year ago. And what we found out is that the average cost basis uh, for people on the, on the Coinbase platform, this was a while ago, it was about, you know, just north of $20,000. I think that probably has moved up. But, you know, it, it you know, if, if it's 21,000, then, you know, I'd say more than 50% of the people have not lost money on, on the Bitcoin slump. All right, but Dan, uh, what is it that is causing this? Because again, that's that's quite a and and it is it does sound like an understatement to say three hundred billion dollars uh, is a you know a blip. Uh, why is this happening now? Look, it's it's a great question. I mean, the, the simple answer is I always go back to sort of the people that I value most. Like if you think about you know it's it's a bit of a cliche, but quoting uh, Warren Buffett here, right? And the, the way he frames it is, is is a lot of these things are not productive assets, right? And the nature of an asset that's not productive is that it is, you know, it's only, it only goes up by when people buy and it goes down when people sell it. So I think what, what we've struggled, you know, over the last, you know, two years is to find real use cases. I think there's an enormous kind of miss, you know, kind of confusion between blockchain, which is a great technology, and some of those tokens or coins, right? Like, what's the value of Shiba Inu or what's the value of Dogecoin, right? And so I think, again, like, you know, Bitcoin is, is maybe different, but but there's a lot, there's a big tail, there's a long tail of all these currencies, which, you know, the, they're, they're, they're sort of questionable to begin with. And, and when, when that starts going down, then everything goes down. So there's a snowball effect here. And I think that's what's happening. And, and by the way, interest rates, right? So interest rates are rising. 
uh, it's harder to borrow. People need money. And so there's some liquidation. So that that's probably the macroeconomic explanation for that. Well, yeah, because you've got some people that have just played played these like a slot machine the whole way through. But then I wonder if more and more people are just using especially the big names as uh, another type of investment, because, I mean, Bitcoin is now pretty, pretty much tied to the, the Nasdaq almost. It rises and falls just just along along the same lane that that does. Yeah, no, exactly. So, I mean, like, uh, this is a great point that you're making. So we've been saying, right, so, you know, I cover Coinbase and we're, you know, we're quite negative and quite, you know, quite bearish on Coinbase. We don't think it's a good business. So, you know, we almost said, like, if you're really into crypto, you might as well just buy own Bitcoin. And we're not saying to buy Bitcoin, but we're saying you're better off owning Bitcoin than owning Coinbase, because at least you're not getting a fee contraction or, or the volatility of, of Coinbase. So I think that's, I agree with you. It's tied to the stock market. It's tied to everything. Um, and, and that's a problem. Does what happened this week add fuel to the narrative that some people have always had about cryptocurrencies, or at least many of them, that they're essentially, you know, nothing more than pyramid schemes, that the people who get in early make money, then they draw other people in, and those people end up losing money, and the people that went in originally are getting their wealth basically off the backs of the latecomers? You know, I mean, I guess there, you know, there's definitely a camp of people out there who say that. And there's, you know, there's a lot of like signs of, of, of I wouldn't say pyramid, but, you know, the fact that people are buying into non-productive assets, right? Like a Dogecoin or a Shiba Inu or, and, and, and it's still questionable, like what the productivity of these assets, right? So when you buy a stock in a company, right, the company generates free cash flow. And so you're entitled to part of that free cash flow when you own the company. So there's, there's sort of a bottom, there's a base, but when you, we're buying these esoteric coins, it only goes up when other people are interested in buying them. So when there's a quote unquote sort of run on the banks and everyone's selling at the same time, and, and that's what you kind of saw earlier this week. So, you know, if it's a pyramid, it's, it's hard to know. I really don't, you know, that's the one thing people always ask me, where is Bitcoin headed? You know, I wish I had a crystal ball. Um, some people seem to have one. I, I really don't know. I just don't, you know, I personally do not own any cryptocurrencies. If that's, if that helps you, uh, <laughs> see where I'm kind of coming from. Dan Dola, analyst at the Mizuho Group, covers crypto companies and financial technology. Tech startups have hit a rough patch. Workers are dumping their shares. There are layoffs and the future is, well, murky. Joining us now is Josh Constein of the Bay Area Venture Capital Fund Signal Fire. He's also a former editor of Tech Crunch. Josh, thanks for being with us. Uh, so why, you know, in our last segment, we were talking about how in this past week alone, uh, cryptocurrencies lost about $300 billion collectively. And I'm wondering at some level if there's some connection to that and the fact that uh, tech startups are not doing well either now. One of the major issues you have here is that because the stock markets have fallen, all investors have suddenly seen their riskier asset classes like venture increase as a proportion of their portfolio. So they're trying to rebalance risk. And that's why you're seeing some slowdown among some investors and valuations coming down. But it's important to remember that while funding rounds for startups are down 8% this year, Funding for startups doubled in 2021 from $294 billion to $620 billion. So you don't have to zoom out that far for this to not look as deep of a cut as some people are expecting. Is the money as easy to come by as it uh, used to be, though, or you got to put up a better uh, case for it? Because there was a while there where, you know, all the reporting showed there were a bunch of unicorns and you had an idea. And yeah, sure, I'll throw some cash to you. I'll throw some cash to you. We'll see how it goes. 
There were certainly a lot of funds throwing money around without a ton of discipline, but founders are realizing that they don't just want the biggest valuations anymore because that just puts even more risk and pressure on them to perform spectacularly or risk failing to raise at a higher valuation in their next round. And so instead, founders want VCs that are actually going to help them, which is why our fund, SignalFire, builds recruiting technology and hires experts like the former Stripe CMO to help our portfolio companies who give us an MPS of 92. Those are the kind of real allies that startups are looking for, not ones that are just going to throw money around. So what are some of the startups we talked about in the lead-in? Some of them are dumping, you know, people are dumping shares. Some of them are laying off. Which are the ones that are being hit the hardest at the moment? There's a lot of startups that are just seeing that that growth at all costs mentality is not the path forward. And so they're trying to figure out how do they improve their efficiency? Uh, because you know, when I think you also have to remember that great startups often get built during these downturns, because instead of every brilliant founder being able to raise for their own startup, you can get more smart people in one room working on one company that can actually change the world. That's how PayPal got built by a team that eventually went on to found Tesla, LinkedIn, SpaceX. YouTube, Yelp. And so sometimes when the fortunes of the startup life fade from the spotlight, the mission-driven companies are the ones that really win. And so we're seeing companies like Flock Freight that's pioneering eco-friendly truck pooling or Class Dojo that connects families and teachers in one in 20 of all school kids are really thriving in this market because people suddenly want to go work for companies they feel good about. We've mentioned the, the stock and how to get rid of it and it's promised to people along the way. What do they do with that? I've got a friend who works at one of these and, and every time he says, well, they gave me more monopoly money like it's not real yet <laughs> <laughs> certainly some some companies uh, that were offering stock at their current valuation and now that valuation is coming down they're having to reprice those existing stock options for employees to keep them happy but really right now it's bunker down and build season you know the startups that stop staring at the stock market and stay focused on making their customers happy those are the ones that are going to thrive Initial public offerings also down, right? So is that for the same reason that some of these startups that were hoping to go public are just thinking this is not the right time? Exactly. Like entering the public market at such a, a volatile time, it's just very unpredictable. So a lot of these companies would rather improve their fundamentals, you know, stay private for a little bit longer where they don't have quite as much regulatory scrutiny and build up so that when the market starts to turn around again, that's when you'll see the sudden flood of companies in the market again. Josh Constein, Bay Area Venture Capital Fund Signal Fire, former editor over at TechCrunch. Early morning tweet from Elon Musk causing a lot of surprise. Putting the deal to buy Twitter on hold, that's his quote, on hold, because he's concerned about a big number of spam and fake accounts on the sites, uh, the bots. Joining us is Adam Rosari, digital marketing expert with Agency Partner Interactive. Adam, thanks for being here. So I guess first we could look at whether you can put something as big as this on hold by tweeting that it is. Uh, but what is your read on, on what his angle could be here? Right. Yeah, it must be Friday the 13th, right? <laughs> I think in this, <laughs> in this perspective here, Elon Musk is uh, he's doing the right thing. Frankly, he's saying, you know what, I want to make sure I know what I'm purchasing. And by the way, uh, I know last year you guys were, were found uh, guilty in a, in a lawsuit specific to misleading shareholders about user growth. So, you know, let's just make sure that we're talking about a Twitter that's that's wealthy with almost 270 million users and not 270 million bot accounts, right? Like, that's what he's really trying to hone in on. And And we know that when Elon ultimately takes over Twitter, his goal is to ensure that all humans are authenticated. That will add so much value to this platform uh, just for that alone. 
Um, but first and foremost, Elon Musk, by the way, he's a guy that has actually used bots on Twitter to his advantage. So he knows that they're on the platform, but he wants to use Twitter's internal data and to understand just exactly how many are there. But, you know, Adam, I was reading this morning that some people smell a rat with that because they point out that, uh, you know, he's a sophisticated guy. He would have known for months and months now that there isn't a really good count on how many bots, how many fake accounts there are on Twitter. And in fact, Twitter itself in filings has mentioned that uh, over many, many months. Mm -hmm. uh, so right. is this really more of a ploy to bring down, he hopes, the price so he buys it cheaper? Potentially, potentially. And I think that's a fair question, too. But But I really think that, you know, given that you know, last year, 2021, Twitter lost $221 million basically as a business related to misleading shareholders about user growth. So, you know, there's there's what they've said publicly. And now that Elon Musk is stepping in the door saying, you know what, I want to buy you guys. By the way, what's under the hood? I think it gives him more access now to data that I think he can view as more credible to see exactly what is that count? Is it a number of you know, in excess of 5% of all the users? Or is, is that indicative of, of how many bots are on the platform? Is it less than 5% of all users? I mean, what is that actual number right now? Because Twitter, you know, their, their growth plans were to add 100 million users to their platform. And obviously, that's gone nowhere. So, you know, let's just kind of see what's going on here. Let's look at some real internal data and, and not focus so much on what, the, what has been presented to the shareholders, because we already know that there's not a lot of credibility to that. There is an outs clause that he would have to pay a billion dollars to just nix the deal and, and, and walk That's away. Right. But also in there is that he had to have made a really good faith effort to, to try before, you know, that can be activated. Is the whole bot thing, does that meet that kind of level of scrutiny that if he, if he wanted to, he could just throw a billion dollars at the problem and go away? Well, you know, he could, he's, a, he's a rare figure, right? He's a guy that could probably lose a billion dollars today on a Friday. And then tomorrow, Saturday, he's still going out for a nice brunch and then forgetting that Friday even happened. I mean, he's like, was that Friday the 13th? I'm not quite sure. Did I lose a billion dollars? Eh. It's very different for him. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that uh, this question of how many bots are on the platform really would be a deal breaker for him because, frankly, his plans for Twitter are so much more than just focusing on the users that are on the platform today. He has huge plans to totally restructure how this business operates. And then, of course, to add more people to the platform, of course, authenticating each one as a true human, right? So uh, maybe I think kind of to your point, you know, do we smell a rat here? Maybe he's trying to wiggle the price down. Maybe he's trying to speed up the transaction, actually, even though he's saying, let's put this on hold. I mean, nothing's on, nothing is actually stopping here. Maybe more of just a slowdown for some real questions to be asked about what he's buying. Adam Rosari, digital marketing expert, agency partner, interactive. What was it? Fifty-four bucks a share he was going to give him. Yeah. Today it's uh, forty seventy-two. Fierce fighting continues in the Donbass region today in Ukraine. The war now in its twelfth week. Joining us now live from Kiev, reporter Phil Itner, who has been bringing us regular updates here on in depth. Uh, Phil, thanks for coming back with us. Appreciate it. Um, so, uh, very quickly, the latest from your vantage point, and then there's some stuff we want to talk about in terms of, I guess, Finland and Sweden and Turkey and Russia and all that other stuff. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. No. Lot, lots to unpack. Uh, well, I, I only just got back to uh, Kiev after uh, being in Lviv for most of this war. I've been coming to this city for 21 years and uh, have been in, and been here many, many times. And uh, I have to say, in all the times I've been here, this is probably the weirdest kind of atmosphere that I've felt 
Um, there is a sense of normality. There are shops open, restaurants open, streets, people on the streets. But it's almost kind of a muted feeling here, almost like kind of for those who kind of walk out of a bomb blast, kind of shaken and then kind of stunned. Uh, alive, but very much stunned. What do we know about how things are in that Donbass region in the front and where the concentrations are right now for the, the actual fighting? Well, the fighting that we know uh, going on out in the east is, is still remains very intense. We have reports of uh, an amphibious approach, apparently, by Russians being thwarted by the Ukrainians, uh, an awful lot of armored units that were attempting to cross uh, a river out there uh, came under fire, artillery fire, and um, just scores of, uh, of vehicles having been destroyed. The intensity of the fighting out there continues uh, to be... Um, you know, at a, a very high level, although gaining ground and losing ground in the kind of ebb and flow of war continues. But uh, again, the Ukrainians seem to be holding their ground, albeit with some minor successes in certain areas by Russian forces. So I mentioned already uh, Finland and Sweden and and Russia, just to bring people up to date. So Finland and, and uh, Sweden are now saying they want to uh, join NATO uh, the Russians are clearly not pleased by this. Apparently, Turkey uh, might have some veto over this. Uh, what is the reading there where you are? Well, the Ukrainians are happy to see it happen. Um, anything that uh, gives consternation to Moscow is, is something the Ukrainians like to see. But, you know, this is a hugely historic moment, actually, if Finland in particular joins NATO, because um, there's just, you know, so many miles of Finnish territory that is shared with Russian territory. And, of course, we do know that Finland and Russia have a longstanding history of, uh, uh, of animosity. I mean, even fighting that, um, that uh, famous war back in, in World War II called the Winter War, which, uh, despite all uh, um, expectations, Finland was able to, to fight off the USSR, which, of course, has echoes here in Ukraine. But the Russians are furious about it because it is basically it encircles them and cuts their Baltic Sea Fleet, one of their primary naval forces. Um, it bottlenecks them in to the um, the North Atlantic, the uh, the Baltic uh, Ocean area. So that would cut their uh, that would basically uh, make a quarter of their entire navy uh, compromised significantly. In terms of negotiations, do those still happen with any regularity, or are we still in this situation where the Russians are really trying to dictate all the terms and the Ukrainians are saying that's, that's not going to happen? Well, as far as negotiations between the Ukrainians and the Russians are concerned, yeah, the Ukrainians are still very much of the mind that we get to uh, decide what those negotiations consist of because we're currently winning this war. But I'm glad you brought that up because negotiations on a bigger picture, on a bigger scale, it's important to note that actually Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, actually for the first time since this war uh, began, had uh, a direct conversations with his counterpart in Moscow. So um, th it, it may not, there may not be any kind of significant successes on the ground here when it comes to the Ukrainians and the Russians, but on a bigger picture, at least a, a crack in the door that has happened between the United States and Russia. You know, I remember, Phil, when we all started talking with you, people were talking, we were talking about how many more days is this going to go on, then it became how many more weeks is this going to go on. 
And now there are people who think, as you know, that this may go on months or longer. Do you? I do. Uh, I I think that this will go on for quite some time longer. Uh, The the sources that I'm speaking to here and that uh, in Kiev, in the capital of Ukraine, uh, it's it's a primary reason why I moved from the West to the capital, because I needed to talk directly to some contacts that I've cultivated over the many, many years that I've been coming here. The Ukrainians uh, are going to keep fighting this war as long as they need to, but they do believe that um, they are closer to the close of the war than the beginning, but they still think it's months off. I have, I've had several people here in Kiev uh, tell me they hope that the war is over by fall and that it will not go into another year, um, but that still means scores of dead. And so this is not over by any stretch of the imagination, but it is not, I, again, the feeling here in, in Kiev is that it is, is we're closer to the end than the beginning, but, you know, this has been going on for three months now. So, you know, what does that mean? We'll have to wait and see how situations turn out on the ground. Reporter Phil Itner, who's been bringing us regular updates here on the show. Phil, thank you as always. Governor Newsom wants to help you pay some of the higher prices triggered by the surge in inflation. That's what he said this morning as he talked about his latest spending plans and revealed the budget surplus that is now a staggering $97 billion. With us is Jeremy B. White of the Politico California Playbook. Jeremy, thanks for being here. So a lot to pick apart, as with every budget. But first, let's do the part that people turn up the volume for. Uh, That's the checks. So where are we with what's going to be either this gas rebate or now seems to be maybe just some sort of inflation stimulus? The governor has been pretty adamant that he wants to do, as you said, sort of refund checks or rebate checks that are intended to address the high cost of gas. So his proposal remains $400 per car, a limit of two per person, and there is an unspecified cap in there for how much the vehicle is worth, the idea being ensure that it's not going to people who have too much money. Um And it's interesting because this is the single biggest line item in the governor's larger package of economic relief, pegged at around $11 billion. But it's also the one that I think there is the most um, sort of question marks around. Legislative leaders have long pushed back on this idea. They would rather do it differently, tying it to individuals rather than car ownership. So I um, am confident that something is going to get done, but I think the exact shape of it is still really going to have to get worked out in negotiations over the next month. Okay, so you said that that amounts to $11 billion roughly? Around $11 billion, okay. specifically for those car rebates. All right, so what happens with the rest of the, uh, what, $85, 86000000000 billion? That's a great question. So it, you should keep in mind that of that nearly $100 billion, which is, of course, a ton of money, uh, only about half of it is what's called discretionary, so it's available to spend. Other stuff is, is um, required by law to be spent in other places. So we are seeing the governor call for spending some of that money on funding a few months of free public transit. A big ad that we saw in the last couple of days was he wants to send bonuses of up to $1,500 per person to healthcare workers, those who have been on the front lines of coronavirus and then various other things to address areas like uh, utility bills um, and uh, people making rent. So a a pretty um, sort of crowded basket of ideas, if you will, uh, to offer some relief to people who, even as the the budget is socking away so much money, 
there are, of course, plenty of people who are not in that top income bracket who are struggling. Most of those things, are they one-time expenditures? Because we were doing the story just the other day about the warnings that always go out, especially with federal money that comes in. Don't put it into programs that you're going to need in the next three years because that money's not going to come next year. Great question. Um, to your point, uh, this type of windfall relies on volatile things like capital gains. The governor said as much today. The vast majority of this proposed money, I think about 94 percent, would be one-time spending. So uh, the governor always sort of expresses wariness to locking in long-term commitments. Although I should note one of the sort of attention-grabbing line items here and one that we already knew was going to be in here, so isn't a surprise, but is nevertheless a big deal, is the governor wants to extend health care coverage to all undocumented immigrants. And that's not a one-year thing. That would be an ongoing cost. As I'm sure you know, often when people move from California, they cite the high taxes here. So would this be a good time to consider, seriously consider, and I know you said the governor is loath to have long-term commitments, but, but is this a good starting point anyway to try to bring down the high taxes in the state? I don't see any move in that direction uh, at this time. I think there are a lot of folks who think that the progressive taxation system that California has is a good thing, uh, and they might point to today as a good example. You know, not that long ago when the coronavirus recession first hit, it looked like California could be in for years of painful deficits as we were during the last recession. Fast forward a couple of years and we have this enormous surplus. And a lot of that is on the strength of the way the state does ask affluent Californians to pay a large share of the budget. So does it increase a lot of year-to-year variability? Yes, but I think there are people who look at today's result and say, it's working. The rich are doing well and the state's budget is doing well also. Did he get questions about that? I mean, was there downturn talk today? What happens if in the next uh, year or two we're in a recession, the rich aren't doing as well to fund all of this stuff? Because the, the, what the response usually comes out is something like, well, we're, we're very mindful of that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, and we heard some of that. I should note that the state is socking a lot of money into its reserves. Uh, the rainy day fund that the voters created back in 2014 would have um, its statutory maximum of about $22 billion in it. So it's not as if the state is uh, frittering away all of this surplus. A a lot of it is being saved for a downturn around the corner. But, of course, a fair amount of it is being spent now uh, in part to offer some relief to people who, again, have not seen as much of a share of this wealth. All right. So May revise today. This is supposed to be done next month. Middle of June. um, If it doesn't get done, then uh, people don't get paid. Um, that combined with a lower threshold to pass the budget and some flusher budget years have been a pretty good incentive for lawmakers and the governor to get this done on time, unlike in some prior years. So um, I, I think it's a safe bet that this gets done by the deadline. All right. Jeremy V. White, Politico's California Playbook. Looks like this long, bitter battle ended last night in Orange County. The Coastal Commission rejecting plans for a big new desalination plant in Huntington Beach. The governor other supporters had called the plant a crucial part of plans to safeguard water supplies and beat the drought. Joining us now is Jonathan Parfrey, executive director of the nonprofit Climate Resolve. He's a former Los Angeles DWP commissioner. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Okay, so if a desalination plant is not going to be the answer, uh, what is? Well, there's some good news. Uh, Here in Southern California, the Metropolitan Water District uh, has some enormous reservoirs. So the Diamond Valley uh, Reservoir 
uh, stores literally hundreds of acre feet of water. You know that old fairy tale of the three little pigs? Well, I have some good news. Uh, Metropolitan Water District is the little piggy that builds its house of uh, brick. And we do have water backed up. So we should be concerned here in Southern California, absolutely, with the drought. But we, we shouldn't be um, uh, overly, overly uh, rot. We, there are things that we can do. First of all, we should do conservation. Uh, that to constrain some of the outdoor watering that we're doing uh, will yield a tremendous amount of water for us. The second thing that we can do is recycled water. We literally flush out into the ocean 250 million gallons of water every single day. And that's water that we currently have the treatment that's far better than desalination of cleaning it up. So it's absolutely pure and we could reuse that water so it's absolutely safe. And then we have to do a better job of capturing the rain when it does come because a lot of that rain just goes right out into the ocean uh, through the LA River and the Bayona Creek and other places. And last but not least, we have to make sure that our infrastructure is doing its job, which means greater uh, efficiency. We ought to stem the leaks that are in our system to make sure the water goes where it needs to go. If we do those four things, we're gonna be doing great here in Southern California. And as I said before, uh, Metropolitan Water using taxpayer and ratepayer dollars did the right thing. And we are ready for these droughts in an amazing way. But uh, there's always more that we can do. If this is the, you know, the new normal, though, and we get seasons like this for years after year after year, are those reservoirs just going to come on down? Because the argument for the desal plant was uh, drought proof, they kept saying. And, uh, you know, the Orange County and the people there said, well, we've got groundwater basins. We're going to be fine. But they said, well, what about hedging about the future? You got to look way past needing it right now. You got to look if you're going to need it in 10 years. Yeah, I mean, the thing about desal is that it's really expensive. And what I talked about, because you're shoving salt water through these membranes, it takes an incredible amount of energy to take all of the uh, saline out of that water. And what we could do with recycled water, you have to use a lot less energy, and you have to use a lot fewer membranes to strip everything out of that water. It's so much uh, less expensive to use the water that we already have purified. So that's the first step. There are things that we already have at hand that, we, indeed, we need to become more resilient. No argument there. But desalination, that's f- much further down uh, on the line of priorities. All right, but how do you get people past what seems to be this sort of psychological hump uh, about consuming recycled water? Yeah, well, guess what? They're doing it already in Orange County. Uh, They asked uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf to come in and help the people of Orange County to get acclimated to drinking recycled water. And so you have the most of Orange County right now is drinking recycled water. And it's it's absolutely excellent water that can be used with no impurities, no uh, public health concerns whatsoever. Rather than saying toilets to taps, I think we should think of it as showers to flowers. So 
there's your piece of record there's, for the day. It works better with the yeah, with research should, group, that one. Yeah. Yeah. You, you should write ad, you should, you should write ad copy. That's, so, that's really good. You, when, when you laid out your plans there and, and things we could be doing better, what's the movement like on, on any one of those four things right now? Okay, so in terms of stormwater capture here in L.A. County, uh, the public in its wisdom voted for Measure W. And so now we have in play uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to do a better job of capturing the rainwater when it does fall. So that's happening. Uh, when it comes to the recycled water, um, I think it's important for the public to communicate with the Department of Water and Power and others to actually contribute more funds to make sure that that water has, a, has an available market. Today, the West Basin Water District in the South Bay is buying, you know, I think it's like 10% of the, of the water that comes out of the Hyperion water treatment plant, and then they treat it again and use it as a buffer to keep the salt water from getting into the South Bay Water Basin. So that water is being used, and we're also using it in purple pipes which is uh, keeping our, our parks green today. You know, I I was thinking what you said. That's actually not bad. From from shower, what was it? Showers, showers to, flowers. to flowers. Yeah. So who were the dummies that came up with with toilets, toilets to tap? tap. <laughs> who came up with that uh, one? Do you, remember, do you remember that? Do you remember that mayoral candidate Joel Wax many years ago? Well, I, I think he he came up with that phrase. And listen, <laughs> you know what? You got to be concerned. Listen, public health is the most important thing. So you have to be concerned about it. I used to be the director of an organization called Physicians for Social Responsibility. We cared. In fact, I was even opposed to recycled water back then. But then I really looked into it. And when I started off as a skeptic, once I read the scientific literature, I came to the conclusion this stuff was not only safe, that water was probably better than the other stuff we're drinking. All right, Jonathan Parfrey, Executive Director of the nonprofit's Climate's Resolve. Well, it's uh, Friday the 13th, and that may have some of you uneasy. Joining us now is psychologist Stuven Weiss, author of Believing in Magic, The Psychology of Superstition, among many other books. Stuart, thanks for being uh, with us. So uh, let's go to the origins of it first, because, uh, I mean, there it goes all the way back, by some accounts, to there are, uh, in ancient Norse times, Norse mythology, there are issues with the number 13. In biblical terms, there's an issue with the number 13th. Where do we get the notion that Friday the 13th is one bad day? You've done your research, I can tell. Uh yeah, there are about three different theories as to where it came from. The the Norse mythology one involves uh, 12 gods in, in Valhalla having a party, and a 13th one comes to spoil the party and someone dies. Uh, the, the one that's probably the most valid is the Last Supper, uh, the idea that there were uh, 13 people at a table, and Jesus was betrayed, and the crucifixion resulted and for for a couple of centuries, uh, the belief was that 13 people at a table or a group of 13 people was unlucky. Uh, and eventually the number just got freed from the table and it shows up uh, with respect to Friday because Friday in Europe was a was hangman's day, was an unlucky day. And so when it turned out to be Friday the 13th, it was doubly frightening for some people. Do you think some people also now just think it's bad because there was a whole series of movies about people getting killed off on Friday the 13th? 
I would I would think that that you know probably does uh, encourage the belief the the fear. Uh, it certainly is a way of, of making money off of the fear, uh, which which is part of the reason why these things stick around. There there are commercial aspects to all of them or many of them. And you know you know the thing is that 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 I think Mike and I are kind of snickering about this, but but there are some people right who even in 2022. It's a good thing it is in 2013, I suppose. But in 2022, who still believe all this stuff, they still believe that something horrible is going to happen to them simply because the calendar says Friday the 13th. Yeah, I don't I don't know how many people, uh, uh, you know, really change their lives with respect to Friday the 13th. I think that I'm sure that some people try not to schedule medical appointments or big meetings on this day and so forth. But but it, it, there, without question, there is a, a segment of the population that believes in a variety of different superstitions, uh, both the positive ones and the, and the negative ones like Friday the 13th. So it's, it's still a thing, definitely so. How widespread, if you know, is the whole idea that, you know, certain buildings don't have a 13th floor? If you look at the elevator closely, there's no button to 13. Is that actually something that, that happens with any regularity or did we just kind of say that oh. that was happening? No, I mean, that, that is very real. There, there was a survey once in Manhattan uh, of uh, the, the, some realty magazine did uh, that looked at every building in Manhattan that they could get into that could have had a 13th floor. And something like 80% of them did not. And I, I think it's quite widespread. The, and again, it's a commercial decision. You know, there's, there's been surveys that show that approximately 13% of people, if you can believe that, uh, would be uncomfortable. <laughs> you, they, no, wait, they, you, you made that up. Wait, 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 wait. I'm, no, I'm calling you I'm, well. you. I'm calling you. You made that up. You made that up. No, 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 no I did really? not. Really? 13 no, percent. And, and of people? I think it's actually been replicated <laughs> once recently. I mean, it's just chance, of course. It's just luck. But but uh, but nonetheless, 13 percent of people would be uncomfortable on a 13th floor hotel room. And uh, and so it's a business decision. It's just it's you know, the, the builders are just saying, you know, why why deal with this problem? We'll just call it 14 and everyone will wink. And it'll be easier to sell those spaces than it would otherwise be. So does this belief go through pretty much all cultures or is it just a, a kind of uh, uh, American, Western, maybe Eastern European thing? Does it go all over the world? Uh, well, the 13 is pretty widespread. It is in Europe and other places. You know, in, in Asia, uh, the, the unlucky number is four. And the lucky number is eight. So they have a lot of telephone numbers that involve strings of eights in them. Uh, but I think they probably have also adopted 13, you know, from us. So uh, 13 is thought to be one of the most widespread superstitions in the world in its various forms. Where else doesn't it show up? So buildings, uh, telephone numbers, are there other 13s that we avoid in life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, you know, I I have a hobby when I fly into a city uh, to look and see if there's a gate thirteen in, uh, and you'll you'll notice in a number of airports that they have deliberately skipped gate thirteen. People are nervous getting on a plane, and they just don't want to go through gate thirteen on their way off to wherever they're going. So and so, so do, yeah. do airlines then tend to not have a flight you know numbered thirteen? 
That I don't know. I, I'm not sure about that. Uh, that it would be worth checking out. But but it's clear that, uh, for example, you know, people are aware of these things. They, the, somebody did a study of the way in which prices were done, advertised in in uh, a number of Asian newspapers. They found that there were almost no fours listed in terms of the price of an item, and that eights, because they're lucky, were way overrepresented in terms of the pricing. So. So people are aware of it in certain situations. I'm not positive about the flight number thing, yeah. but I wouldn't be surprised. Flight 1313. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Stuart Vise, author of Believing in Magic, The Psychology of Superstition, and uh, many other books. Stuart, yeah. thanks.